Hello again, everybody. Welcome to Looking Back, Moving Forward. This is Anthony Harris, your host, and I'm excited to, today to have a couple of really important people that I want you to meet, and their names, and I've mentioned before in some of my previous episodes that I was going to have Hezekiah Watkins and Andrew Ledwell to come and be a part of my podcast, and uh, they've written a book called Pushing Forward, and it's a book about the life of Hezekiah Watkins, who was the youngest person to go to jail during the Freedom Rides. He lives in Jackson, Mississippi. I've gotten to know Mr. Watkins, um, and I've gotten to know Andrea, and they're just really solid people, and I, I wanted an, an opportunity for them to talk with you, to share their stories with you, and we have some things we want to talk about, about the book and about some things that are going on in our country right now. And we'll just go ahead and get started, jump right into it. And I'm going to ask Andrea and uh, Mr. Watkins to talk a little bit about how this project came, came about. Uh, how did y'all get together to write this book and to get this thing completed? Because it, it is a book that many people should read, but I think having a little background on how it came together would be very helpful there. Okay, Andrea. Okay, well, I, I will start. Um, I was visiting family in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I'm from Mississippi. And so uh, I now live in Houston, Texas. So on my way back, I decided to go out of the way because the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum had only been open for a few months. And I had just completed re uh, writing a short story based on the Woolworths lunch counter sit-in in 1963 that took place there in Jackson. So I was eager to tour the museum and had heard a lot of wonderful things about it. And so decided to just kind of, um, you know, take, take a detour and, and check it out. So while I was there, um, I started talking to a few of the museum attendants and just asking questions and uh, told them a little bit about the story I had just and uh, one of them pointed me in the direction of Mr. Watkins and said, well, we have, you know, a freedom writer that works here in the museum. And I just couldn't believe it. I said, really? Get out of here. That's, that's amazing. I, I have to meet him. And so uh, the, the attendant pointed me in the direction of, of Mr. Watkins. And uh, at the time, I believe he was speaking with a high school group that was there at the museum as well. So I had a, a few minutes to just kind of sit back and observe his interactions with the high school students. And one of the things that just really uh, made an impression on me before I even had a chance to meet Heck was that he was talking to these students and these students were fully engaged in everything that he was saying. Um, and it, it just that whole observation there at the beginning um, just really made an impression on me. So I finally had a chance to to go up and talk to him. And I think just from the beginning, there there was that connection that we had. I don't know if it was a Mississippi thing. You know, we say it was a Mississippi thing. <laughs> but uh, we, we just talked and, and I could not believe once I heard his story, I just thought, wow, this, this is a story that is just mind-blowing. I wanted to know more. I wanted to, you know, find out how is it that, that at the age of 13, this young boy who was in the, the wrong place at the wrong time 
you know, get sent to Parchment Prison and put on death row. And how, just how did that whole series of events come to be? And so I asked a lot of questions that day. I probably, uh, <laughs> probably talked his ear off by, by all the questions I was asking, but there, there was definitely a connection that was made. And um, I'll never forget, heck, what you told me uh, that day uh, as we started, you know, talking about your story and then uh, talking about the, the possibility of finally telling your story. And that was one thing I, I just couldn't believe that, that the story was untold. And, you know, there hadn't been a book that had been written about it, hadn't been an account told about it. And so you said, you know, we, there's a reason why uh, our paths cross today. You know, you have your reason for being here at the museum and I have my reason for being here at the museum. And for some reason, God allowed our paths to cross. And so that was really it, the, the beginning of our meeting and uh, the, the journey of us starting uh, the project of the book. And it all started, um, you know, with, with that foundation of, you know, there's something bigger than us that's at play here. So I think that's an excellent point to make about the almost the a divine intervention, if you will, how things happen for a reason, they happen for a purpose. And your paths crossing at that time was a uh, was providential. It was something that needed to be done. The story, and everybody has a story to tell. That's the cool thing that, that we need to remind people, that everybody has a story to tell. Not everybody wants to write a book about their, their story. Nobody, not everybody wants to give a speech about their story, but everybody has a story to share with somebody. And whatever medium you use to share it, it's so important to, to tell that story. And, and after all these years, we, we finally got Mr. Watkins to share his story. And I think that's been a blessing to all of us and, and I'll just say here before I ask Mr. Watkins to, to uh, say something, but, uh, you know, the, the title of this, this podcast is Looking Back, Moving Forward. And, and I, each week I try to alternate sort of the past, bringing up to the present time. And definitely we're going to blend both of those in, in this interview today, talking about what went on in the past and how the past and the present intersect, how what's going on today can be traced back to what went on in the past. So that's, that's, what, we, that's what we want to do here. And I'm going to ask uh, Mr. Watkins to get to, the, get to the meat of the story, get to the heart of it. I know there are so many stories you can tell, and I've heard many of them and I've read about them, but I want you to give people an opportunity to, uh, to learn about how it all got started for you. Would you share that with us, please? I'd be more than glad to. Um, I was in the eighth grade in middle school here in Jackson, Mississippi. And my friend and I got interested in the national news because during this time, a lot was going on in Alabama. And Alabama would always be the top story. And we would make sure our eyes and ears were set on the TV because they were showing the Freedom Riders. They were showing the public what the Freedom Riders was going through. And he and I would just sit there and look at each other and, 
and make statements, uh, how can they do that? They, the Freedom Riders, how can they put their body through what they're putting it through? How can they uh, just sit there and let dogs bite them? How can this, how can that? All of these, how, 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 how? So we began to look at the Freedom Riders as superhuman individuals. Uh, so like a Superman, although we didn't have a Superman, but we had the magazine Superman. Uh, superwoman, we didn't have a superwoman, but we looked at them as being super women and uh, the black ones were super, super uh, uh, men and women to us based on the role they was playing. Uh, we'd never seen anything like this on TV nor at the movies. So they was our heroes per se. So once again, back to the school, um, it was in May, school is about out for the summer. And my principal came on the intercon and was wishing the kids a safe summer. Um, mind your parents, don't get in trouble, don't do this, don't do that. Yay, 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 yay. You know, I'm ready for him to, you know, get off the intercon, let us go back to whatever we was doing. You know how you can hear and not hear. Well, that's basically what happened. I heard him and I didn't hear him. So school was out, so we out playing. I'm doing what I normally do. Uh, going to sovereign, that's right. So recall going to church one Sunday to get a word. And the word that I got from the minister was about the Freedom Riders. Uh, I recall him quite vividly saying that if those Freedom Riders come to Jackson, make sure that you do not get involved with them. And once again, you know, I'm listening to the pastor uh, make that statement, but you know, it's just a statement. So some of the older residents uh, in the neighborhood began talking about the Freedom Riders. They gonna come here and make it bad for us. We gonna have to do this. We gonna do that. And just, just kept on, kept on. So we really didn't know what to do or who to believe. So we heard that the Freedom Riders was gonna be coming to Jackson at the uh, place called the Masonic Temple. So he and I got on our bicycles and we rode to the Masonic Temple. After arriving at the temple, the meeting was about over, but this guy was standing up saying, the Freedom Rider will be here shortly. How many of you would like to join forces with the Freedom Riders? I looked at him and he looked at me. Well, we know they're not talking to us because not only my pastor and my principal 
had said something, but there was others. And mainly that other person was my mother. So my mom had told me not to get involved. I mean, that was enough. Uh, because, you know, when your mother tell you not to, you didn't do it. Back then. <laughs> and and I didn't. But we get to the Masonic Temple and they ask her who want to get involved and nobody is saying anything. So um, we said, well, why don't we go down to the bus station? And by going down there, we can get, hopefully, an opportunity to look at a Freedom Rider. And I'm thinking ahead of my friend. He's talking about looking at one. And my thoughts, if I could just touch one, if I could just put my hand on his hand or on any part of the body, I would be the biggest kid on the block. Not only did I see a freedom rider, but I can say I had an opportunity to touch one. So we are waiting for the buses to come in and nothing happened. So we waited probably about 30 minutes. Could have been longer, could have been shorter, I'm not sure. But I can tell you this, the wait was long. So we decided to run past the front of the bus station, an area where blacks are not allowed to enter the bus station. But it was a wide sidewalk. So we got as far as we could without getting in the street and ran past the front door. In doing so, we could not see what was inside of the bus station. So my friend said, well, look, let's walk back slowly. And as we walk slowly, we're going to be looking inside. That's okay. That's a great idea. He said, you go first. I said, I went first the last time. No, we 13. So, you know, kids act like that. So, he said, well, you go first again, man, because, see, you faster than I am. And they'll get behind you and chase you. Then I'll have an opportunity to do something different. That's it, okay. So, we're walking fast, passing the front door. And as we approach the front door, I kind of slowed a little, and he slowed a little as well. And he pushed me inside of the bus station as a joke. After being pushed inside, he ran. I turned to run behind him. But by the time I made that turn, it was too late. Police officer put his hand on my shoulder and asked me what was I doing. You, you know, the answer was nothing. Why are you in here? I don't know. Are you part of the, the Freedom Riders? No, sir, I'm not. Okay, sit down over there. So I took a seat. And he asked me two questions. He asked me my name and my birthplace. I gave him my name 
and when I gave him my birthplace, he yelled out, we got another one over here. I didn't know what that meant. All I could hear was footsteps running to the location where we were. And the city's officers running up to me and I'm just as scared as all outdoors. You know, what have I done? What did I say? So, so being from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I said, no, sir, I, I, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. I thought you said she was, I, I was born there. Just born, that's all. I'm trying to explain that my father and mother and two older brothers left. Uh, my father was looking for a better job, better life during the uh, great migration time and, and just trying to make it better for his family. So after we get there, I mean, after they get over there with me, um, they tell me to stand and they pat me down and put cuffs on me. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm in a paddy wagon. Uh, being taken to the state prison, which is Parchment. And I didn't know anything about a state prison. Didn't know anything about Parchment. I didn't know anything about a jail. I didn't know nothing. I had not been privy to any of this type of information. Um, being in a little solid knit community where everybody knew the neighbors and even the one around the corner was your your neighbor and if you mess up here you got a whooping over there then you got another whooping when you got back home so that was the type of um, community if it wasn't being taught uh, in the school or in the church then we knew these he and I and a few others didn't know anything about it. Um, uh, very few curse words that we heard. Uh, hadn't used any, I don't think. But my point is, we were just so naive until uh, so we just didn't know what was happening. And the next thing I knew, we was driving, not knowing where. Uh, it was several hours. Seemed as though it was all day, but it was several hours before we got to the prison and um we get to the prison i asked the god uh sir officer i'm not sure how i referred to him like where are we he said you in parchment prison okay parchment prison you know that's my mindset uh, sir uh, officer uh what is parchment prison <laughs> and they both laugh. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, it's not to myself. This is not funny. I need to know where I am. And so were you in Parchment Prison? And this is Death Row Camp. Death Row Camp. Okay. Well, I'm still saying to myself, I don't know nothing about no Death Row Camp. What is Death Row? So they put me in a cell with two other individuals who was there for murder, who had had a trial, 
found guilty and sentenced, and their sentence was death. So they was already asleep, and I didn't wake them up, but they woke me up the following morning and asking me, your little blood, why are you here? What did you do? All of these things I'm saying, I didn't do nothing. Oh, you did something because you're here. No, I didn't do anything. I'm just here. And it just went on and on for, for several several minutes. Um, breakfast came, and I went to, 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 to retrieve my breakfast, and they took it. And, you know, that wasn't no big deal because I'm so scared. Uh, I couldn't have eaten no way. Um, so I'm trying to find out about Parchment Prison and by these guys being black, and I'm black, I'm thinking they're gonna uh, you know, tell me what is happening, um, take me under their arm per se, and uh, you know, give me the ropes. And um, and they did, they began telling me about Parchment Prison, what it was about, and Death Row, the camp camp that I was in. I trying to figure out what you mean, camp, the area that I'm in. This is what all goes with Death Row. You, when they call you, and if you go to the right, that means that um, uh, you're gonna be executed. If you go left, then you're going to see maybe your attorney or you're going to see somebody about something. And it's still, you know, they're talking so fast and they're talking that jailhouse lingo and it's not making sense. So the um, that second meal came and they took it. And once again, I didn't mind because I'm, I'm I'm crying inside, but I want to be a big boy. And like anybody, you know, you're saying, you know, you want your mother. Uh, but on that third meal, you know, I had gotten a little hungry. And uh, uh, they took it. So I went to the uh, God. And uh, when I said I went to the God, I didn't go physically to the God. I went to the cell and I made some noise. So the God finally came and I told him, say, these guys, these guys took my breakfast and they taken my lunch and I got my dinner. Which one? I said, well, both of them. Well, what you want me to do? I want you to get my meal. I'm hungry. They didn't take my meal. They took your meal. So if your meal was taken, I suggest that you go and get it. That wasn't about to happen either. So we went on for several days, several days and talking about this and that. And it was, um, and being 13, um, being exposed to some of the things I was exposed to and the language, the language I, I was able to deal with, but 
um, a lot of other things that um, uh, was happening in there that um, it was hard for me to deal with it. And believe it or not, um, maybe three years ago, just three years ago, we're talking 50 plus years, that this whole ordeal never did formalize again in my mind. So I didn't have any problem with it until one day I was at the, um, the uh, Mississippi Museum and um, I was talking to a group of students and a, a portion of it came out and I had never told my wife, my children, nobody uh, about it. Then thereafter, I began having these, um, uh, I think my wife called them nightmares. And then they got worse, uh, that I was uh, being thrown into a river of being lynched. And I began fighting in my sleep. I mean, the story goes on and on and on that I could sit here all night and tell you about what I went through. And basically, I'm still going through some of it as we speak now. But anyway, let me get back to Parchment Prison uh, and tell you a little bit about my relief from Parchment. We had a governor, his name was Ross Burnett, probably the most racist individual who ever lived. And, you know, we talk about white privilege, uh, in the 60s, he talked about white privilege. And he talked about white privilege to every white person. And he told them, if you don't have it, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You had your opportunity. So my point is, if you was white and you was not in his category, then you was in mine. You was along with me. That's the way he felt about white, uh, poor white, should I say. That's the way he felt. And um, But during that time, back to the governor, I'm told that the president of the United States, which was John F. Kennedy at the time, and the governor, of course, was Ross Burnett, and his brother, Robert Kennedy, was in a three-way conversation with the governor, telling the governor that he did not want to see anything like he had witnessed in Alabama, in Mississippi. And supposedly, the governor assured him that Mississippi would not be like this. Uh, the next thing I knew, I, I was on my way back to, uh, back to Jackson, and I was released.
my mom came and picked me up, which was a uh, a day that I'll never forget because my mom thought I was dead. And um, she had searched around um, her employer. I had pretty good connection with um, law enforcement. And they had searched within a hundred plus mile radius of Jackson and um, there was no me nowhere. And my mom had set up a search uh, group to look for me. And the young man I was with um, ended up leading the search party for me. And if he had told my mother what happened, my mother would have whipped him. His mother would have whipped him. So he would have, well, let me, let me use another word. He would have got a beaten by both parents. So opposed to getting a beating by both parents, he chose not to say nothing. And he didn't. But my mom came to the jail and with the intentions of identifying my remains because they didn't tell her we have your son here so we need you to just come down to the jail and everybody around the neighbors and those individuals who knew a little about law enforcement they was telling my mother well uh they probably want you to look at some bodies to see whether or not that's your son. And I recall standing in this big room, handcuffed against the wall, and my mother walked through the door and spot me in the in the corner, per se, and she hurdled every desk, every chair, and any object that was in her path to get to me. And we hugged, we cried, we, we did all of those things that imaginable. And we're on our way home. And on the way home, my mom is touching me. Uh, you got a little bump here or not here. Uh, it's like you're swollen right here. I'm telling mom, I'm okay. You got a little knot on your head right here. I'm okay. So I'm thinking to myself now, I suppose, my mother is not mad. She seemed to be okay with this situation. Get home, and I'm walking up the steps, and she tells me, when you get inside, drop them. And I'm saying, ma'am, when you get inside, drop them. Now, I, I don't know whether you know what drop them mean, but back in those days, drop them meant take off your clothes, all of your clothes. And that's what happened. She, um, I took them off and she came in with a, a piss alum switch, one of those switch where you get three of them and you braid them together. And once they are braided, they become unbreakable. 
and she beat the hell out of me. And that putting it in a mild way. And I don't want to have anything to do uh, with the Freedom Riders. Didn't want to have anything to do with nobody uh, that was connected to the Freedom Riders. And lo and behold, here come a guy by the name of James Bevel. Smooth talking James Bevel. He had heard about me and wanted to talk to me. And I said, okay. So we sat on the porch. He said, man, you need to come into this movement. You need to help us. And I don't know if I laughed at him or what, but I do know I told him, no. I might have even cursed. I'm not sure. But the answer was no. But he kept coming. After my mom would go to work, he would come. He would come. So one day, he convinced me to go for a ride. And I did. And we went downtown Jackson. And the first place we stopped was at a water fountain that read colored only. And the other side read white only. He said, will you drink out of that side there? I told him, no. He said, why? I said, well, look at it. There was bird droppings, all kind of debris over in there. Well, whites would come along and spat over in there. So, no, you, you wouldn't drink. You would just die of thirst, probably. He said, well, you drink from this side, which was a shiny side that the uh, maintenance cleans periodically. I said, no, I'm not drinking from that side either. And the next time we went to the bus station, the city bus station, to board a bus, and we got on the bus, and I got on, on the bus, and I went to where I normally would go. And that's almost to the back, if not to the back. And he stopped halfway. Maybe better come on back here. You know, you better come on back here. Man. I ain't going to jail. But not knowing the bus we was on was a bus that blacks went to the black neighborhood. And that particular bus, you could sit anywhere because there must be no whites on it. So anyway, he began to show me things that wasn't right and how I could make a difference. And uh, I'm telling you, there's no way I can make a difference here, man. So he finally met my mother after I had told him, a few others had told him that my mother was a real, she was a religious fanatic, my mom were. And James was a, a bootleg preacher. He could preach. He could preach and he could sing. And he came over to my mother's house and wanted to know whether or not she would be interested in doing a Bible study, uh, bring the kids in. These kids need the Lord. That's what they need is almighty God to come in and take control. And my mother wanted to hear that. What's your plan? 
He said, well, let's start a Bible class. And she was all fun. So that next week, whatever day it was, he came over with a box, a little red Bible, a little testament Bible, a little pocket size. I don't know if they're still being made today or not, but that was the uh, that was the norm back in the day. And not only did he do that, he brought little snacks. And we would do little, do a quiz. Um, he'd come up with a, a, a chapter, a verse, uh, whatever, whatever. And whoever would turn to it first and stand up and read, just, a, just say it. Um, Jesus said, let my children go. You won. You would get a bag of chips, some cookies, uh, and a drink, a soda. And, man, that was a big spell because the kids w was hungry. And the more they found out about it, the more came. So we started off in the living area and we had to extend it to the porch and from the porch to the front yard. And from there, we had them in the living room, the porch and the front yard. We had that many kids over there at the time. I did not know it. Other kids did not know it, but he was setting us up for the kill. And when he got enough, and got them in a position and said, meet me here. And, um, you know, it's all started. But before it started, he went to church with us one Sunday. And um, I saw him when he walked up in the pulpit and whispered something in the minister's ear. Uh, apparently he was asking the minister, could he, um, I bring the um, the message, and he said, "Yeah," and he got up and began singing and preaching until everybody in the church eyes was filled with water. He was that type of guy. He was just so passionate uh, with his words, with his singing, and just got them all in his control. And my mother. Um, told him that if you promised me you would take care of my son, then I would let him go with you. And when she said that, you know, I was, I was glad, but I was scared. <laughs> you know, I don't know this is what I want to do. I'm saying this to myself. But um, it was a long journey. It was the journey that I that I really enjoyed. Uh, I had an opportunity that most did not have. Had the opportunity to, to meet all of the great civil rights workers, uh, especially those who have, have gone on. Um, I had a chance to travel. Um, my first flight was um, it was by being a, a freedom rider. Um, there's a lot of things happened to me at a young age that I wasn't 
Uh, to, to be honest with you, I wasn't prepared for it. When I look back at um, my time that I was with Martin Luther King, even John Lewis, um, being with him, um, well, I didn't have cell phones then, but there was cameras. I, you know, I, I don't have pictures um, with any of these individuals. Uh, great individuals, um, in my opinion, but um, but I'm very thankful for what I was able to do. wasn't that much, but I had no idea while doing these things I would be making history, and um, I'm glad I did. And most importantly. I'm glad I'm here tonight to be able to talk with you all. Well, thank you very much, Heck. I, I, I've heard you speak about your experience before, but I learned a little bit more tonight hearing it from your voice, not just what's on the, on, on the, on the pages of your book, but to hear what you went through, the trauma that you experienced being on, not just being a parchment, but being on death row and being in a cell with individuals who had been convicted of murder. I have to believe that that was intentional to put you where they placed you because the intent was to scare the daylights out of you. Was, it worked. Yeah, it worked. And, and that was, and, and they probably figured out what's, what's the worst thing we can do to make this young man so scared that for the rest of his life, he'll never ever forget that he should not have been at that place at that time. Uh, he needs to be convinced. He he needs to know his place, because apparently, as a black kid, you forgot your place. Yeah. So I just my heart goes out to you. You say you're still dealing with some of that stuff, and and I think it's just more evidence of how uh, how traumatic racism can be. The effect it has on on our mind, our body, and our spirits, even after all these years, and. You know, just the you know having nightmares and and all the things that you you've indicated. I'm glad you share and thank you for sharing it with us. Uh, it, again, it, it speaks to the long-term effects, negative effects of, of of segregation and racism and discrimination and their efforts to try to traumatize you. I'm going to move on. I want to get Andrea in involved in this this conversation a bit. Uh, Andrea is is the co-author of the book. And she shared with us earlier how she she got to meet Heck over at the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. Um, and, she, and the thing that bonds the three of us together, of course, we're all from Mississippi. I'm from Hattiesburg. Um, Heck, even though he was born in Wisconsin, he is still Mississippian. He's still a Mississippian. And, and Andrea uh, grew up in Petal, Mississippi, which is just across the bridge from Hattiesburg. And I've gotten to know Andrea over the, the last couple of years, and I know her to be a person who is a genuine ally and committed to the struggle for racial equality and social justice. And I know she's been on a journey as a white person to try to figure out how she should, what she should be doing and how she should do it. So I'm going to ask you, Andrea, if you would just talk a little bit about that journey from uh, the, the short version of it from where you were to how you are now and what do you try to what's your message to other whites 
who might be interested in knowing how to be where you are right now. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'd be happy to discuss that. So I grew up in Petal, Mississippi, and like you said, just right there adjacent to Hattiesburg. And, uh, you know, it, I think it goes without saying my experience growing up was drastically different. Um, I, you know, grew up hearing um, maybe the occasional racist jokes um, every now and then. Uh, I could count maybe on one hand the number of black students um, that were going to my school the entire time I was growing up. Um, I had a, a constant mirror of people who looked like me, people who reflected my culture, um, who, you know, uh, were just, a, just that mirror on a daily basis. So, um, you know, I didn't have that experience, so to speak, of, of you know, interacting with anybody outside of, of you know, my race. Um, however, I had one individual in my life, and uh, I really feel that set the course of everything that I'm doing now. And that individual was my grandmother. My grandmother uh, grew up, you know, in Mississippi as well, in Jones County, um, and she was a nurse who worked for 30 years at the Forest County Health Department. And so um, a lot of that consisted of doing field work. And so um, she got to see firsthand um, the inequalities that, um, you know, were going on in the state. And she would travel all across the state and, and get to observe this. And it deeply impacted her. It affected her. And um, she was all the time when I was growing up telling me uh, and spreading the message of, you know, Andrea, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It does not matter our skin color. We're to love one another. And so I constantly had my grandmother's voice telling me that over and over and over again. And she not only said it, that wasn't just her message. I saw it through her actions. And that was deeply impactful for me. Um, and so I, having, having that type of role model in my life, and as Heck has often said, all it takes is one individual to make a difference. And that individual, you know, being my grandmother, at the time I didn't know it growing up, but it definitely was the guiding light on this journey that I find myself, you know, involved with now and being an ally. Um, but it all started with her, you know, and I, I see that now and just deeply and profoundly appreciate that. Um, so as far as where we find ourselves now and my message to, uh, you know, the, the white community, first and foremost is that I would say we have to listen. Um, we, we don't listen as a whole. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why don't we do that? Well, we've already made up our minds that we're right. And if we're right, and our opinion is right, I don't have to listen to what you say because I've already made up my mind that, you know, I'm right and you're going to be wrong. So it's that type of mentality that, that I see that's going on. And it, it all needs to start with listening and with being empathetic. You know, um, I need to try to understand without really being able to fully comprehend and understand another person's experience and try to put on their shoes and, and walk around in it a little bit. 
And so that's what I, I found myself doing with Heck and with his story. And out of all of the interviews that we did, and there were countless of, the, of them, um, I, I can remember maybe out of the first, you know, two or three, the, the total, uh, you know, um, amount of words that I said was probably like, wow, or that's unbelievable, or, you know, I can't believe that, you know, so it was mainly just me listening. And I, I feel that that's, that's such a, an important thing that's lacking is, you know, we need to be listening to each other. We need to be trying to understand, you know, where are we and how did we get to where we are? And then that is found by looking back and uh, trying to dig into that history, trying to listen to those stories, just like Hex that, that has not been told and has not been taught in, in history classes because this is the type of history that we weren't taught in schools, um, that should be taught in schools. Um, and so, I, other than that, I would say we, we have to not be silent. Um, we have to use our voice to speak out about things that we see that are wrong, and knowing that if we don't speak out on things, then it's, it's consent for them to continue. Um, so we, we, we have to be able to and be willing to, to use our voice to be able to, as, as John Lewis says, make good trouble, necessary trouble. Um, it's, it's so important uh, now, probably more than ever. And, uh, you know, I, other than that, I would say we need to also be in learning mode. Um, we need to be constantly trying to educate ourselves. Um, we need to be talking to others, you know, keeping that dialogue going, you know, having a conversation, um, you know, being open to um, different perspectives. Um, we need to be digging into the history that we weren't taught, you know, and we need to be asking ourselves why. Why weren't we taught that? And we need to be telling others about it. So, um, you know, other, other than those things, you know, um, I, I think those are, are the, the, the key important um, aspects of what we need to be doing now. Well, I think that's, those are very well thought out words. And, and I know the journey that you've been on, you and I have had many conversations about this, and I know you and Heck have had even more conversations. And you have been, I think you've embodied that, that being in that learning mode. I think you've talked about being educated, being willing to, learn something and that's one of the, the the challenges that i find myself running into many times is there are people who want to learn and then there are people who don't want to learn they simply don't want to change and trying to reason with unreasonable people is akin to pouring water onto concrete the water just sits there i mean it doesn't go any place it doesn't serve any purpose and one of the things I have learned is to make myself available, and I think you is what you're saying, to make yourself available to those people who want to listen, who want to grow, who want to learn. And, and that's, that's an important thing to do. I think you, as a, as a white person, you have people in the white community, perhaps, who will listen to you, who will understand your journey and, and, and figure that, Okay, she's she's making sense. I'm going to listen to her. Whereas if heck or I talk to them, they might just dismiss us and saying we're being we're just playing the race card or we're 
or being overly sensitive or anything like that. So it is fantastic to um, to have you share your story with us tonight. We're, we're going to wrap this up, but there's so many more things I want to talk with these two people about. And I'm going to ask them, I'm not going to help get them, ask them to do it right now. I'm not going to get them to commit to it right now, but we'll talk about it later. I want them back on again because there's so much more in the book that I want to uh, have Heck tell us about. And one of the things that we were talking about earlier was uh, Medgar Evers. And, and I want to get him to talk about his his recollection, his memory of, of Mr. Evers. I think that his the anniversary of his death was, I believe in June, was it? Yes. And, and uh, he's somebody who is um, very important to the civil rights movement in, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, the whole state of Mississippi. He was field secretary of NAACP. And I want us to talk about that. John Lewis, of course, is somebody that all of us revered and, and, and held in high esteem and still do. You had some conversations and some interactions with those people. But I want to stop here and, and, and also ask Heck or Andrew to tell us how we can get a copy of your book. And the title of the book is Pushing Forward. So tell us how, if somebody's listening out there and they say, well, I need to read that book by Hezekiah Watkins, where can they go and get a copy? Okay, I'll, I'll say. <laughs> okay, so you can go to www.pushingforwardbook.com and we have it available both in print version and digital as well. Very good. Can they get it on Amazon? Uh, it's not available at Amazon, so uh -huh. it's only um, select locations. Uh, uh -huh. The Mississippi Civil Rights Museum is another. Mm -hmm. Which is the last thing I want to talk about and just say some, give a shout out to the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, which is where Mr. Watkins worked. He's a docent there and he, he's an icon. He's, a, he's an institution within an institution there at, at the Civil Rights Museum. So if you're ever in the Jackson area and you have a chance to go by, please look for, ask for, try to search out for Mr. Hezekiah Watkins. He's in, he's in great demand. Everybody wants a, wants a little bit of his time. So if you're fortunate enough to, to meet him and go by, it'll be time well spent. So I'm going to close now and, and thank my guests again, Andrew Letwell and uh, Hezekiah Watkins for agreeing to share some stories about this, this fantastic book called Pushing Forward. The story of a young man, a young boy actually, who was the youngest person to be arrested in the Freedom Rides in, in the early 60s and, and the traumatic experience that followed that. So once again, thank you for listening to Looking Back, Moving Forward. And until next time, I'll say goodbye. <laughs>